Okay, I'm sorry about the end of the last update. I didn't mean to be rude. Uh, I'm just, you know, tired. It feels like I'm always tired these days. I haven't been able to look into too much this week because I've been busy with work and, you know, life in general. My line manager mentioned that I seemed distracted and I don't need to be written up, so I've had to force this into the background a bit. The last thing I need is to lose my job over all of this. Although, if it is real, it does make me question why I feel that way. If everything we think of as fact is just some random construction or some kind of hallucination, then maybe I shouldn't be quite so worried. And on that note, I'm sorry if you've written in to ask me something and I haven't replied yet. Like I said, I'm trying to maintain some semblance of normality in my everyday life, but it's getting harder the more I look into this. Some people out there have accused me of being deliberately confusing and rambling, and while I'm not disagreeing with you, here is your weekly reminder that I'm discovering this stuff as I go. I'm recording when I can, adding new stuff as I discover it. Please remember, this isn't a story. I don't know how this will end. I'm not going to find things out in a nice, neat order, and so yeah, it's potentially going to get very confusing. I try my best, but I am way out of my depth here. Due to this, if you're listening for the first time, please make sure you go back and listen to the previous instalments. If you choose not to, please don't write me angry emails about how none of it makes sense and you're lost. I've got enough on my plate without that. Look, okay, I'm sorry, again. I don't mean to be short with anyone, and I hope you can understand this that I knew I discovered something different, something strange. I just had no appreciation of how different it would end up being. And given I only found this stuff out a few weeks ago, it feels overwhelming. I won't lie, I have thought about stopping this, putting the podcast, burying the lot of it, forgetting that I found it. It would make my life a lot easier. But then again... Living in ignorance always is. <laughs> my mum always did say that my endless need for answers would get me into trouble one day. Although I, I think she thought I might end up back chatting a police officer or something. You know, equally mundane. Not finding evidence of something that questions our entire knowledge of our existence. And the very nature of what we think of as reality. And on that vein, what have I found out this week? Well, Mr Aliens is back. He says I shouldn't dismiss him so easily and that it's hypocritical of me to ask all of you to go along with all of this and then tell him aliens aren't real. And you know what? He is absolutely right. So I am sorry, Mr Aliens, and I, I mean that. It is indeed profoundly hypocritical of me to imply your ideas have less weight than my own. I'm still not personally convinced, but, you know, that's okay. If you find evidence that reticulans are controlling reality and using that to influence human evolution for reasons, then please pass it along to me. It'll undoubtedly make just as much sense as the rest of this nonsense that I've been looking into recently, and the more the merrier, I suppose. 
Because of the stuff I mentioned earlier and the simple fact that there is so much here, I've decided that narrowing these things down into themes is probably the best way forward. I was already kind of doing that anyway, not deliberately, that's obviously just how my brain works, and so we've already looked into the sound in general and impossible disappearances and whatever the hell I was trying to say about the nature of time and the joyful mindfuck that is the Mandela effect. So this week I decided I was going to focus on water. I've said it before, but it hasn't escaped my notice that in a lot of the letters and reports, water is mentioned in some capacity or another. Now, given water is incredibly abundant on our planet, the often quoted fact that 70% of the Earth's surface is water, um, not sure if that applies to groundwater or not, but it illustrates a point, means that we're never that far away from a source of it. Even in the middle of the desert, geographically speaking, there is a water source nearby, be it in the ocean or deep underground. I mean, not that it helps when you're stuck in the middle of the Sahara, but, you know, the point still stands. We are also mainly made up of water. I'm not sure how they calculated it, but it is said that human adults are made up of 65% water and that our brains are 75% water, which basically means we are effectively sentient water. We come from water, both literally and within the framework of evolution. Amniotic fluid surrounds us as we grow in our mother's womb, and if we go back far enough, we can trace our vertebrate lineage right back to the lobe-finned fishes that ventured up out of the ocean and onto the land. Hell, it even goes back further than that. Look up the Cambrian explosion and their little creature called Pikaia. That's P-I-K-A-I-A. I mean, it's not really relevant, but it is interesting. The thing is, we carry water in our blood, in our very DNA. Water is life. Without it, we die. But it's also very dangerous. We can't breathe it. We can't spend too much time in it. As a kid, I was always a little bit scared of drowning, and even now my nightmares are filled with visions of huge tidal waves bearing down on us while we stand hopelessly on the shore, waiting for it to crash over us and wipe us from the face of the planet. We are nothing in the face of its power, no matter what we might tell ourselves. At the moment, the beast is docile, and so we think we've tamed it. But that won't last because it's also one of the Earth's true last wildernesses. We know more about the surface of the moon than we do about our own oceans. More people have been into space than have dared to go down into the Mariana Trench. It's an environment so hostile to humans it may as well be in outer space. But that doesn't mean it's empty. No, a startling amount of life has evolved down there, each species uniquely adapted to surviving in such a harsh environment. We're discovering new species all the time, forcing us to revise our own understanding of how our planet works, and ultimately the relationship we have with it. I think one of the saddest things I've ever read is how scientists have discovered plastic pollution within the Mariana Trench, a place so alien and unknown to us, a place that only a small handful of people, including, rather bizarrely, James Cameron, yes, that James Cameron, he of Aliens and Avatar fame, have ever been down there. Yet, we're already polluting the place. How many unknown species have, are having their environments poisoned by our selfishness? Do they ever look up and wonder where it's all coming from, spin yarns about powerful beings that seem hell-bent on destroying them? 
I know it sounds stupid. As far as I am aware, fish don't have gods, but it does raise some troubling questions. If we can affect an environment we literally cannot survive in, or even really visit other than through the use of remote control technology, one so far away from our own, both physically and metaphorically, what's to say that there isn't something else out there doing the same to us? Just as those fish are inconsequential to us in our lives, are we as equally insignificant to something else? What if the sound itself was the equivalent of a cosmic crisp packet? Maybe it wasn't targeted. Maybe it was a a byproduct of something so much bigger than ourselves, enacted by something that doesn't even realise we're here. Or it does, and it simply doesn't care. It's like that Russian novel, The Roadside Picnic. Are we just ants getting in the way of something too huge for us to comprehend? I said before that the oceans are weird. There are lots of strange phenomena down there. Half the legends about sea monsters have turned out to be true. We take whale sightings in our stride now, but think back a few good hundred years with people taking long sea voyages for the first time. Coming across a blue whale must have seemed like the leviathan made flesh. No wonder they thought there'd be dragons. For them, the dragons were very real. Hell, look at the kraken. The giant squid Archeuchethys, treated as a myth for so long, when in fact it is a very real denizen of the sea. The first recorded mention of it was by Aristotle, but it wasn't until the 1850s that people started to treat them less like sea monsters and more like actual animals. That's hundreds of years for that particular myth to ferment. The first actual specimens that were found were were always dead, washed up on the beaches of Newfoundland and New Zealand, or extracted from the stomachs of sperm whales. This basically confirmed their existence, but didn't dispel their mystery. The decomposed state of their remains meant that they were kind of relegated to this weird twilight zone of supposition, where they were both very real, but also like strange oceanic ghosts, Schrodinger's cephalopod, inhabiting a place where they were both fact and myth, and no one knew their actual state until the box was finally opened and they were physically observed in their own environment. Do you know how long it took us to get actual, concrete evidence that giant squid were actually living in our oceans? 2001. I know, right? That was the first time one of them was actually caught on camera, and even then it was a juvenile. It took another year before an adult was captured on camera off the coast of Japan. And those were only still pictures. It took until 2006 before one was captured on film. And then it took until 2019 before they managed to film another one. 2019! I mean, that's like yesterday! These creatures can grow up to 43 feet in length. That's 13 metres. And we can't find them with any kind of regularity. We basically know nothing about them apart from the simple fact that they exist. These enormous creatures swim undetected in our oceans at depths we struggle to reach even with our best technology. Which only begs one question. What else is down there? It's not like draining a pond to see what lives in it. We gaze up towards the stars, wondering what life is out there, if any, when in reality, maybe we're looking the wrong way. 
What might live in our oceans down in those deep places where we just can't go? What is waiting patiently for the time of mankind to pass? All of this had me looking up oceanic sounds again. We've already covered that the sea is a treasure trove of anomalous sounds, but one really stood out, the bloop. I didn't mention it last time because it's been linked to ice carving off the coast of Antarctica, and there's a pretty good chance you might have heard of it. In, in fact, a couple of people have mentioned it in their emails, which is why I went back to it. But if you don't, in 1997, the US National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, more commonly known as the NOAA, recorded an ultra-low frequency sound off the coast of South America in the Pacific Ocean. They called it the bloop, and it was totally unlike anything man-made. Submarines, explosions, whatever, it just didn't fit any known sound profile for volcanic eruptions or shifting continental plates. As I said a moment ago, most experts reckon it was probably ice carving, but its profile was so odd that some people still maintain that it could be animal in origin. The only problem with that was that it could be heard 4,800 kilometres away, which I don't think I need to stress is a huge distance, making it way louder than anything any whale or the like could produce. The upshot of this is that if it was an animal, it either had really, really big lungs, or it was absolutely enormous. You know, Leviathan-sized. What makes it even funnier is that the area it was recorded in is basically the same area that Lovecraft's Cthulhu was said to lay sleeping in his underwater city of Relais, which made some special folks wonder if, they, if that story was true. Although, given the story I told last week was also linked to one of old HP's stories... Maybe they are having the last laugh after all. Anyway, experts have largely dismissed this theory, partly because it's just bonkers, and mainly because the sound was so deep and so loud that it would be physically impossible for it to be any kind of creature. It would have to have been the power of whatever times larger than the largest giant squid if it was. And yeah, I would have said that ice carving does indeed sound more plausible than some gigantic aquatic cryptid living at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, but that was until I found this. I found it among the letters. A brown folder, slim, official looking. It's got a stamp in red on it. It's in Russian. It didn't take me all that long to work out that it says top secret. I've been weighing up the pros and cons with regards to this document. Whoever kept all of this stuff or collected it or you know, whatever, I don't think they were supposed to have this. And it makes me wonder what else is hidden there in those piles of papers. I've tried to go through them methodically, but just when I think I might have, I don't know, not worked it out because I'm nowhere near anything even vaguely resembling that, but maybe sort of organised what I found, something like this turns up. Inside the folder is an official looking document. I can't read Cyrillic, which really shouldn't come as a surprise given past admissions of my woeful knowledge of other languages. Thank you, British education system. Um, but it looks like a report. There's another top secret stamp over it and another stamp I can't translate, but I'm guessing it might be something along the lines of classified. Bits of it are blacked out. At first, I wasn't quite sure what to do with it but, lucky for me, someone has included a far less official-looking translation. In fact, it looks like they copied it onto a page of slightly yellowed A4 notebook. 
I'm guessing they were looking to do something with this information, but never managed it. Or they forgot when the rest of us did. Or they were made to forget, if you know what I mean. What I think I'm trying to say is, this could be a massive risk on my part. I thought about leaving it, but I can't. Because it's... I don't know what it is, but it feels important. It feeds into the narrative in a way I can't quite pinpoint yet. This document is over 30 years old, and usually, at least in the UK, declassification occurs around 25 years unless there's a, a good reason not to. But at the same time, it's not British, so I don't know how relevant that is. This was written in the dying days of the Soviet Union, so who knows? All I'll say is that, as you know, I usually post once a week and I try to respond to messages as quickly as I can. If it gets to a month and you still haven't heard from me, maybe call the police, okay? I mean, I would hope my family might raise the alarm before that, even if it was just to wonder who the hell was going to cook them dinner tonight. But, um, okay, yeah, (sighs) I'm being dramatic. Uh, Why would anyone care, right? It's all nonsense. So... This isn't a record of a disappearance. No one vanished. It might have been classified solely from a Cold War perspective rather than it having anything to do with the event, but I'll let you be the judge of that. It's dated the 2nd of March, 1988, which means this report was taken a couple of days after the event occurred. Basically involves the crew of a nuclear submarine, like I said, Cold War shit, doing manoeuvres or whatever just off the coast of Newfoundland. It hasn't escaped my notice that there were a lot of washed-up giant squid corpses in that very region in the mid to late 19th century, but even I think that's probably just a happy coincidence rather than anything sinister. Or at least I hope that is the case, because if it isn't, then, yeah, what the fuck is going on, right? So, to the report... There's his crew, and as far as I can tell, what they're doing is routine. There's nothing about battle stations or silent running or anything. Or, if there is, the person who translated it left that bit out as irrelevant. Now, I know what you're all thinking. Kay, how can you trust this translation? To which I say you're right. But maybe you'll understand why I think there's a good chance it's authentic after you've heard what's in it. Mainly because I don't see what anyone would gain from forging this or for making a deliberate mistranslation. It doesn't have anything to do with war or politics, unless you count being off the coast of Newfoundland, which I wouldn't know because war stuff wars the tits off me, uh, to the point where I almost ignored this, but you'll see. The translation is rough, and the bits that have been redacted means it doesn't necessarily flow very well, so I apologise for that and any badly pronounced names. I promise I don't do it on purpose. So here we go. A translation of a transcript of the debrief of a member of the crew of a Russian nuclear submarine that had an encounter with an unknown entity or phenomenon on the morning of the 29th of February 1988. Everything was routine. Most of the crew was stood down, with only myself and my associate Konstantin on active duty. We were headed redacted. I'm guessing these might have been coordinates given they're set, they've been censored um anyway back to it uh when a strange vibration overcame the boat at this point it was more of a sensation than anything else maybe a propeller had been caught on something 
not a regular occurrence, but also not completely unknown. But every instrument said they were clear, and besides, we were not losing speed. The sensation then picked up, shaking the room, so I said to Constantine that we should check the sonar, even though we'd only done so moments before. We were tense. We weren't supposed to be engaging, just surveillance. Some more of it is then redacted, possibly because it either goes into detail about the actual mission or, or, me, or maybe reference to officers they wanted to keep away from this whole incident. Um, it could be neither of those things, but that's not important. Um, the next bit is. The vibration grew until it was so strong it felt as if the boat might shake apart. A strange fear overcame me. Had we been caught in something? Had our enemies constructed a new kind of sonic weapon that ensnared submarines or maybe targeted the navigational instruments? It was known that redacted, and this is a huge block of black, so I'm guessing it talks about experimental weapons of their own, but nothing on this scale. Constantine continued to monitor the sonar as men flooded the area. We weren't supposed to be engaging with anything, but everyone was scrambling to take up battle positions we would not be caught napping. Redacted then joined us, asking for a report. We all glanced at one another, unsure of what to say. No one wished to be the one to admit that we had no idea. Then Constantine gasped, and all eyes were on him. Redacted took over the screen. We were all expecting the worst, but rather than have orders barked at us, Redacted and Constantine shared a single, almost frightened look. I was the nearest, and so managed to steal a look at the sonar myself. To this day, I can't explain what I saw. A huge, indeterminate shape rose up hundreds of feet in length. And then, as quickly as it appeared, it vanished. All through this, the vibration was building, making the boat groan around us. A few leaks sprung, which only fed into the air of barely controlled panic. A few of the men were on their knees, praying, beseeching for our salvation. Or, if not that, then a quick and painless death. The boat juddered as if it had hit an unseen reef, which was impossible. Or would have been if it hadn't have been for what I'd seen on the sonar only moments before. Redacted barked orders, telling us to turn, but everything went black as all of our electronics failed. Now there was no unknown reef on the sonar. There was no huge, mysterious object in our path. There was nothing. We were sailing blind. For all we knew, we could have been on a collision course with the seabed. All the while, the vibrations continued to build until that noise around us rattled our teeth and forced us to our knees. Our hands clapped over our ears, as if that might help block out the sound. It was as if a mouth to hell had been opened on the sea floor, and the devil himself was screaming for release. Then the thudding sound started, deep booms that broke into the whale, as if something gargantuan was pounding at the boat's hull, trying to force its way inside. Metal began to squeal as more leaks sprung, and more than one man cried out in terror. I lay on the floor, unable to move, unable to think a coherent thought, simply trapped within that barrage of sound and waiting for what I thought was my inevitable death. And then, as quickly as it began, it stopped. Everyone lay on the deck as our instruments sprang back to life. 
The scene before me was one of nightmares. Men struggling to find their feet, blood streaming from their eyes and ears. More than one man was left deaf, and one was even blinded. Later, we found out that whatever had assaulted our submarine had affected the entire world, but then, in that moment, we had never felt more alone, or more aware of our own mortality as we sought the relative sanctuary of the surface. The trip back to Redacted was mercifully uneventful. There remains only two things to note. One is that none of the instruments in our boat recorded the phenomenon. It was as if it never happened, just a seamless stream of uninterrupted data, never once picking up any strange sounds, vibrations or pressure changes. There was also no record of what I saw on the sonar before it failed. It is as if the sound and the thing out in the water, whatever it was, were only detectable by the crew. Something psychic rather than physical that could only affect minds and not the machines they controlled and relied on. The second was that the exterior of the redacted was scratched and dented, as if we had hit some kind of outcrop of rock, or as if a huge hand had enveloped it and tried to rip it apart. I don't know which is more worrying. That we ran into a brand new, undiscovered reef or outcrop, which then vanished without a trace? Or that some mysterious, gargantuan entity reached up from the sea floor and tried to drag us down into the depths? And that's it. Something massive and unknown in the sea. I've looked into the sea depths around Newfoundland and Labrador, and there are some pretty deep sections out there. The area would have had some ice around at that time of the year too, but even bearing this in mind, I don't think it was anything to do with icebergs or ice carving or whatever. I don't know why, I just get the impression they were deeper than that. Deep enough to avoid detection anyway. So what was it? Well, your guess is as good as mine, I suppose. Either way, it's pretty impossible. Quite frankly, I actually think the giant marine cryptid theory is more plausible, with a massive footnote of, no, I don't think it was Cthulhu. Uh, <laughs> but that has to be more believable than a deep water reef just appearing out of nowhere and then just vanishing again after nearly running them aground. Unless... Unless there was some kind of convergence of, I don't know, places or times or... Or realities. It's always said that you can't be in two places at once, but look at the Philadelphia experiments. And yes, I know, bonkers lunacy only believed in by the tinfoil hats of this world, but isn't this in the same vein? Allegedly taking place in late October 1943, the Philadelphia experiment was an attempt at trying to turn a warship called the USS Eldritch. And no, the name does not escape my attention, because of course it was called that. I doubt a ship called the USS Sugarplum would have been tied to such a conspiracy. But anyway, um, they were trying to turn the Eldritch invisible, which is wacky enough on its own. But there was allegedly some kind of disaster tied to it all. The details have been picked over in many, many other places, but the short version is that the Eldritch was seen elsewhere, mainly in Norfolk, Virginia, not Norfolk, East Anglia, although that would have been hilarious if it had been. But, but yeah, it was seen in Virginia when it was in dock in Philadelphia, making some people wonder if it had actually been teleported somehow. Then there are the tales of men being fused into the hull, becoming one with the metal, which, you know, it sounds horrific if true. 
but it is largely regarded as a big old pile of bollocks, with the US government denying any kind of experiment happening then, let alone one that allowed a massive destroyer to be seen in two places at once. And even with everything I'm looking into, I do think that the Philadelphia experiment was a load of gubbins, mainly because the whole tale just falls apart when you do even the most basic research. But does that mean that this kind of bilocation is impossible? There are quite a few examples of people bilocating throughout history, some of them ancient, some of them not. It's definitely one of those things that has captured human imagination over the years. And if people can do it, then why not a submarine? It is, after all, filled with people. But that doesn't explain why the instruments didn't pick anything up. Not even the damage, I'm guessing. Our mysterious Russian submariner wonders if the event was psychic rather than physical, which opens up a whole new can of worms. Was this thing targeted as us rather than just a freak occurrence? And if it was targeted, by whom? You know, every week I come here hoping to be able to give you some answers, but the more I look into this, it just leaves me with more questions. And maybe I'm not the right person to do this. Maybe someone with at least a passing knowledge of physics would be a better choice. But I don't know anyone like that, so I guess it's going to continue just being me. Anyway, thanks for listening. I do really appreciate it. If nothing else, it allows me to get all of this stuff off my chest. So, until next time, K. Museum of the Missing is written, performed and produced by Claire Waller. The title song, Museum of the Missing, was written by David Rizal and is performed by David Rizal and Claire Rizal. It is used with permission. If you're enjoying the story, please rate, review and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Contact details and social media links are in the show notes. If you wish, you may also buy the podcast a coffee at Museum of the Missing. Thank you for listening. About memories wiped away About time has gone astray It's the horror of the age